left off last week, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 16 through 18 primarily is where we're going to um, focus a little bit, but I want to review because, again, we got we have to look at this in light of the whole kind of of where we've been in these past two weeks. Uh, we're going to go all the way back to two weeks ago into verse 14 because anytime I can bring this up and make sure that we're still doing okay, I'm going to want to do it. Um, I asked you this, this question last week. I'm going to ask you again. How did you do this week with complaining? Did you do well in your attempt to stop grumbling, to stop murmuring, to stop complaining, or did we fail miserably? Yeah, it was only a one-week thing. Yeah. It's actually only just for this 30 minutes. It's okay. Yeah. Um, so I think each week we continue to see how tremendously difficult these things are. Uh, we, we set our sights on one thing. We have one objective uh, we're often very, we struggle to accomplish multiple things. So we try to get our sights set on one simple thing, and we do it for a short time, and we're doing really well. But ultimately, we default back to who we are, right? We're complainers. We're grumblers. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Again, the exhortation to do these things in such a way that shows this thankfulness. Because again, do we complain when we are thankful? When we're thankful, there's a lack of complaining. Again, it's thanks, it's gratitude, it's being gracious in things. We tend to complain only when we show a great lack of thankfulness for so many things. And I want us to look again at verses 15 and 16 for a few moments here uh, this morning. 17 and 18 will move rather quickly this morning, but I want us to take a look back at these things and understanding again uh, where exactly we are, not just as people in this one specific context, but with our nation as a whole, with our world as a whole. I think we saw a lot of these themes, but verse 15 of Philippians chapter 2, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that even in this time that can often be commonplace, that as we pray to you, as we open up your word and read the very words that you have spoken to us, I pray that we would take these words as, as treasures, that we would truly take them in the beauty and the majesty that they are to be received, that these are the very words of you that you have spoken to us in a manner which you we're not bound to do. You could have remained silent, but God, we, we praise you that and we're so thankful, immensely thankful that you have chosen to speak to us uh, through what it is that you have written in your word. We thank you again this morning for the incredible access that we have to the very word of God, uh, whether it be through so many books, um, but even something as simple as on our phone. God, we love you and we praise you for all that you've done this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
In verse 15, we see again the, the reasons for why it is that we are to do things without murmurings and disputings. And as I said last week and two weeks ago, uh, if this doesn't do it for you, how about the idea that no one likes a complainer? All right? We don't even like who we are when we complain. We really don't like it when somebody else is complaining, but we really dislike it when someone else is complaining about us. Right? Um, I don't think that when people complain about us, we're like, yes, this is the rejoicing and suffering that we've been studying about. No, that's not how we interpret all of these things. But he says that, to do all these, do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. Again, attaching your identity right back into these things, that you may be these things. And then the parenthetical there within, just the commas here, the sons of God. Again, spirit of adoption. Those who have been redeemed, those who are saved, have been adopted as sons, co-heirs with Christ. You are sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And I want to double back and talk again about being lights in the world because as we understand who we are in contrast to the world, we understand that you are going to stand out. Lights in the world are going to stand out in a dark place. We Again, some of these things we talked about this morning in Sunday school, it takes very little light in a dark room for it to be noticed. Why is it then that the Christian can shine as a light in the world? It's not because of our great skills and gifts and abilities. It's not because we have persevered in our own efforts, our own work. We have labored so hard, and now look at this incredible treasure that I have made myself into, where of course God would love me. It is simply because Christ himself is the light of the world. If Christ is in you, then shine as if that is the case. I mentioned the German philosopher who had said, show me your redeemed life, I'll be inclined to consider your redeemer. Much of the world engages Christians in such a way that says, you don't truly live what it is that you claim to believe. Imagine a church, imagine a world, imagine, let's just take Glenwood Springs right now. There is a lot of churches in this very small area, correct? It is packed with different churches. It is not a high amount of population. The math is crazy in favor of opportunities to be a part of a church. But now consider if every member of every church, every attender of every church, actively in every area of life, not only did all things without complaining and disputings, but let's look back at previous verses, but would make make ourselves of no reputation, taking on forms of a servant, being humble, doing all of these things that the Christian is supposed to be because of who Christ is. Imagine if every single attender of every single church in this area lived a life that truly reflected all it is that we claim to believe. Would our town be different? There would be a tremendous change in the town when Christians, those who claim to be truly redeemed, if we actually lived a redeemed life. Oftentimes what happens, we know this because at times it can be us, at times it's others. I'm giving you a very heavy qualification there, a lot of grace and leeway. But we understand what this is. Um, the, la the latest poll that I looked at, um, over 75% of the country as a whole claims to be Christian. 
Now pair that with everything that you know about what happens in our country, not only day to day, but what our country publicly endorses. Over 75% attest to be Christians. Less than half of those people claiming to be Christians actually believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. Now consider the implications of what these things are saying. Over 75% say, yes, I have been saved. I believe in God. Uh, Jesus saved me from all of these things, from my sins. He did all of this. But yet, less than 40% of those people would even say that he lived a perfect and a sinless life. The implication is then that he is not a perfect Savior. He is incapable of saving you from your sins if he could not even save himself from his own. Less than half of those that are Christians actually believe that the Bible is truly the word of God rather than just good stories, uh, metaphors, good example, uh, life lessons, right? We look at Old Testament and we go, ooh, that's a character study of this person. We need to be more like David and Noah and Moses and Abraham as opposed to all of it is showing who Christ is, him as the model, him as the example all the way through. I don't know how many of you are ever intrigued with these numbers. I actually, I love looking at these polls. It's both an encouraging thing at times, but it's also incredibly disheartening to see truly theologically what people who claim to be Christians actually believe. Most of the world, over 90% of people that were polled said that they believe that Jesus was a historical person who did actually live. So there's not even a dispute so much anymore because of all the, the science, the history, the archaeology, all of these things. Many will attest that, yes, Jesus actually lived. The question is, was he truly the Son of God? But understand how hard it is to then argue from the Bible when ha over half of the people who claim to be Christians have said, I'm not totally sure the Bible really is the Word of God. It's just there's a lot of good things there. How hard that is and how hard it is to be a light in a nation, in a generation who is basically without any sort of objective truth, that is so focused on the secular humanist mindset that says, we are the end-all, be-all, we are the top of everything, right? We're, we're you humans. God created us on this day. He, he died, Christ died for us. We are this. We are all these incredible, incredible things. We must be all that there is. And I've said it before. Every time science comes out with a new discovery and we say, look, we understand how this works now. Clearly a God didn't make it. It just evolved this way because now we learned something. Those things that 50 years ago some of you were taught as objective scientific truth, verifiable fact is now not even, it would be laughed at 25 years ago and it would be laughed at even more so now. We see here in this text and we see throughout all these examples that the Christian, and we read the, the high priestly prayer of Christ and of him making it very clear that the world is going to hate his people because they hated him. And often we're taught, and it's preached in churches, that, hey, if you're a Christian, you're going to be an awesome person. You're going to have good morals. You're going to have all of these things. So the world is going to look up to you. People are going to want to be like you. And so much so, you're going to be blessed. You're going to have all the comforts of the world. But here's the kicker. But you still get to maintain your eternity, and have everything you ever would have wanted right now. Christ made it very clear. They are going to hate you because they hated me. And it wasn't just a dislike. It wasn't just a, you can't sit at my lunch table dislike for Christ. It was a, we hate you 
that we want you not just killed, but beaten and mocked, constantly ridiculed, and now we're going to persecute anybody that claims to know you or to love you. It's often overlooked that when people would come and visit Paul in jail or other Christians in jail, we see that and we say, well, yeah, of course you would. But in this time, it was a very dangerous thing to go and to visit Paul in a prison. You are therefore saying, I too am a Christian. You would have very likely been indicting yourself in the same circumstance. How terrifying it is in so many countries around the world now, whether you're somewhere in Turkey, you could be in different parts of China, you can be in Syria, in all these places, you could be in prison simply for being a Christian. What great fear would overcome so many of us to go and then visit that person? If I go to Syria, I get thrown in jail because I'm a pastor ministering in one of these foreign countries, and you say, well, I want to go over there and I want to see him, but they're probably going to lock me up too. That is what many of these people in this time dealt with. This is what so many people deal with now. I read missionary letter over there in the UK, and again, he's talking about a Muslim family that's a part of the church and different things that are going on there. Many of us that are politically aware um, watch the news a lot. We understand what Europe is like. We understand what the UK is like. We understand what France is like right now. It is not getting much better over there. And yet we are increasingly wanting to be more and more like the example that they have set forth. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, I understand that for some of you, you grew up in a time where that would have been hard to reconcile with what you saw because you grew up in a time where church is what you did. People went to church where things that you would see, whether it was in television or here on, in the music, it was not nearly uh, close to the same degree of things that we hear now and the things that we see now. You, are, you couldn't even imagine it. Uh, what is it? I love Lucy with the two separate beds, right, for the married couple? Okay? Try telling your parents now what is acceptable in movies for teenagers or just children even. Just imagine trying to explain to them what these things would have been like. Couldn't have possibly imagined these things. A crooked and a perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. The implication, obviously, is that as Christians, we are supposed to stand out. We are supposed to look different. We are supposed to be something different. Why? Because we are not of this world. As Jesus makes this clear in John 17. They are not of this world just as I am not of this world. How disheartening it must be to look and how, how troubled and grieved God must be when he looks at his church today and sees that it is married to the world just like anybody else. And I'm looking around right now and I'm not seeing a bunch of, yes, I want to go out there and conquer the world kind of faces right now. But understand that this is exactly the context, not only that Paul is writing to with the Philippians and understanding the situations here, crooked and perverse nation. Again, this is a universal sign of human depravity, completely and totally depraved apart from Christ, yet Christians are supposed to shine as lights in the world. And I want to encourage you that you can only do this, not just by the way that you live, but at times you are going to have to speak. 
we have to say things. We have to live as if these all that we've ever studied, all the doctrine that we know, we actually put it into a practical use, both in our speech and in our actions. Were you troubled this week when you saw all the news about New York's new legislation? I know many of you were because I'm friends on Facebook with you. It's going to be about the only good thing Facebook's ever done is allowed people a forum to have conversations on these types of uh, issues. But we look at the nation as a whole and we see one of our uh, greatest states that surrounding nations and people look up to so often and we, we see this public endorsement of wholesale murder and with, through abortions and, and of children in this kind of a way. An innocent child, a helpless child, all supporting a woman's freedom to make a choice to kill a baby. All the way up, basically right up until the birth. And I know that they temper it by saying, well, you know, it's, it's only with the viability of, of the fetus or health and safety of a mother. Yet every person that's ever had a medical degree will say it's a whole lot easier to do an emergency C-section than it is to perform an abortion. Millions of lives murdered, and yet this legislation comes across where now it is basically the life is, this, this child is viable. It could sustain life outside of the womb. It could be born two minutes after this would be performed. And it would be completely fine, able to function. It would be everything. The thing that all of us are currently, that is what this child is, the time that it is being killed, murdered, and aborted by these people. And how does the world respond to it? How does New York respond to it? How is all Facebook, all these other media outlets? Praise. Look at this. What a great monumental shift this has been for all of humanity. Look at how far we are advancing now because people get to choose to do this. So much so, it's not even just in the conversation, lighting up one of the towers to show, look at this grand display of our nation endorsing murder in this way. Oh, but you're not allowed to pray in a public school. That might offend somebody. That might hurt somebody. Someone may not like what it is that you're doing sitting there silently, or having a Bible, that book could greatly grieve a person, but and it, so many other things are okay. We see how worldviews, we understand how different, if you weren't sure as a Christian, if you were really not a part of this world, open up your eyes, pay attention, and look around you. You are going to see you are in such a stark contrast to everything that is going on right now. But also keep in mind, this is not a new occurrence. This is not something new. People, we see even in the Psalms, we see throughout the Old Testament, we see all these different situations of people offering sacrifices, not just of a bull or a ram, but actually offering their children as sacrifices on the altar to a pagan god. This is not a new idea. It just takes this form in our present day. So when we look at a crooked and a perverse nation, I do not think that it is a stretch for us to look and to see that those without Christ are absolutely going to be left in darkness. It is, a, it is an absence of a straight line. They are going to be crooked. And what is it that the church, what is it that Christians are going to do 
about these things. And as I said, it's not write your congressman. It's not just banter back and forth on Facebook as if that's going to actually make any change. It's by actually talking to the people that you know. Praying for those people that you know, both in the workplace, in the schools, even praying for those in your churches. Because again, all the polling data says, large numbers of people in churches have no issue with what New York has just done. Because my freedom trumps anything else that God has ever said. The minute I start to think that God takes away any bit of what I think is my freedom, then people have an issue with God. Churches have consistently made concessions in so many places. Talks about in verse 16 here, holding forth the word of life, not just holding firmly to these things, but holding it out so that others would take it. If you're to hold forth any amount of money, you're extending it out for someone else to take it. Christian, you carry the message of eternal life. You carry the word of God with you wherever you go. You carry a life reflective of what Christ has done. Are you holding it out or are you holding it in? Hold it forth or just retain it for yourself? There was a lot of time this this past week as so much was going on and so much in conversation. And I'm sure I'm probably not alone in this, but as you, you saw the conversations with New York, you see the continuing um, depth of depravity. You see all of this just continuing, getting so much deeper into this, where now the nation as a whole is so celebratory of these horrific, evil things. You're left with basically two options. It's either to ignore it because you can't handle it, or you, you just break down. You start weeping and you pray. And I understand, yes, this sermon is vastly different than what... I usually do. I'm, I understand that. But as all of this was going on and, and all of this conversation and, and even last night just so brought to a point of just this, this anguish and so much pain over everything that is going on with the world, everything that we see going on. When was the last time you were truly in anguish over these things that you have seen? When was the last time you were truly troubled by it? Not just saying, well, that's stupid or that's ridiculous or, well, I really wish it wasn't that way and we just start grumbling and complaining about it. When was the last time you truly were in anguish, deep, actual pain because of what it is that you saw going on? Have you ever been in anguish over a neighbor that you know does not know who Christ is and is desperately sick? Are you in anguish over a, ch a child that you know? That may even be in Awanas every single Wednesday, might be in your Sunday school class, might even be in your own home that you know is not hearing the gospel. Does that bother you inside? Does that actually tear you up? Does it do something within you? Are you weeping over these things? I was reading in Nehemiah this week, and you see this incredible scene all the way through, and I'm not going to go all the way through it, but you see the delegation from Jerusalem coming, and they're coming, and they're saying, hey, the walls are getting knocked down. We're in trouble. The whole city is falling. I don't know what it is that we are going to do. This looks very bad. They give the report to Nehemiah. What is his response? 
he breaks down and just starts weeping and sobbing and praying and fasting because he has no other avenue to go. Deep agony and anguish over people that he cares about. And even here as we look in Philippians again, we, we see Paul going through similar situations in the sense of he is in prison. He, he is going through great amount of suffering. He sees that these people, this other church, so many people, those around him suffer, and he always says how much he longs to be with them. His heart breaks for them. He knows of his Jewish brethren who have rejected the gospel, and he wants to trade places with them. He wishes that he would be accursed for their sake. He is so concerned for those that he loves. And we've talked at great lengths about suffering and understanding that we are to rejoice in those things that we suffer because we understand why it is that we suffer. We understand who is in control in our suffering. When your life was the most comfortable that it has ever been, God was seated on the throne absolutely in control. And when your life was in its darkest place, God was in the same place, completely in control. Paul rejoices. Christ in Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. They were still rejoicing in this time. We look at all these martyrs prayerfully and, and, and singing as, as they're going to be martyred and burned at the stake. That does not happen without actually truly having convictions and believing these things that you have attested to. Verse 17, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. It's being offered upon the sacrifice and service as they being poured out, symbolizing the, the Jews and pagans would both do this with the sacrifice. They would pour they would be pouring it out. This would symbolize the rising of the sacrifice in a closing part, just to an additional little aspect of their sacrificial system here. It says, even if I am to be poured out upon your work and your service, I rejoice in these things. He's saying, if I am just even slightly added on to what it all it is that you are doing, icing on the cake, if you will, because the Philippians were also enduring suffering. They were suffering just as he was, and he did not count his own suffering as greater or more noble than theirs. He simply was humbled and said, even if I am to be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and I rejoice with you all. John MacArthur wrote that our greatest joy comes at the point of greatest sacrifice. Look back in your life. Maybe it's something that some of you have actually experienced that the greatest joy came as a result of your greatest sacrifice. But here we see Paul living a life that is truly built upon sacrifice. He saw his life as his ultimate sacrifice to God, but yet so many of us, that is the last thing that we will ever sacrifice to God, is our complete life. He lived his life as if it was only for the purpose of, of ministering to those around him and glorifying God. 
I would take a guess and say probably 70% of the people here this morning have memorized Romans 12, 1 through 2 at some point in their life. Offering your life as a service and a sacrifice, right? A living sacrifice. We've memorized it. We've talked about it. This is the Christian life, to offer it as a living sacrifice, to be offered up to God for his use and his use alone as he sees fit. This is the way in which Paul lived his life. We don't see Paul complaining. We see him rejoicing in these sufferings. And this is why the believer should not experience joy the way the world does, which is in midst of circumstance. If the times that you have had greatest joy in the Lord is because of incredible circumstances, I'm going to greatly encourage you to reconsider your understanding of what joy is. Because if true joy could be found through circumstance, through comfort, through any physical things, then someone's going to have to explain to me why the people in the world that have everything material are so joyless. Why they're constantly going from one spouse to the next or one partner to the next or having to get a new house, having to get a different car, having to do this, having to continue each and every day for a constant pursuit of something because they are restless, because there is no joy in those things. For the true believer, the, the sacrifice for God is with an immense amount of joy because you count it a privilege to die for him, count it a privilege to sacrifice for him. Do you think Peter was grumbling at his crucifixion or was he in great amount of joy at what it is that was taking place because he knew what was before him? He knew, he, he rejoiced in the fact that he would even be counted worthy to die for the cause of Christ. So many never experience this joy that the Bible so frequently discusses because we often never experience any sacrifice. He talks about being offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Talking to the church, the church is sacrificed. They have made these different things. He himself has made sacrifices in so many places. What is it, and I'm asking it for all of you, what is it that you have sacrificed to God? What have you said no to for God? And for some, it can be trivial things. It could be physical things. It could be all of this, but we're going to extend this out and say, have you sacrificed your free time to God? Have you sacrificed just being left alone to God so that you can actually be an effective minister of the gospel to those that are with you at your workplace, at your home, even at your church? What have you sacrificed? What have you been willing to lose to sacrifice to God? Joy is often seen in Scripture, but yet many in churches often struggle to ever, to ever find any sense of it because true joy is only going to come through the sacrifice. We see obedience made perfect through suffering. We see rejoicing in trials because that is what it is that produces these things. It produces the faith, the endurance. And, and in talking of anguish, do you, 
anguish over those churches that have pastors and have teachers that preach nothing but prosperity, that preach comfort and blessing, and that preach that, hey, life is going to be fine as long as you sow a seed into my ministry. God is going to reward you with comforts. Does that bother you? Do you take great offense when the gospel is blasphemed, when Christ is blasphemed in all of these things? Because what happens is so many, so many of us have grown so passive in our life. We say, yeah, I go to church on Sunday mornings when I'm able to. I kind of come and go, but you know, I'll do it again next week. And there's just no time in the rest of the week. There is no time to worship together as a family. There is no time to pray over my kids, to pray over my school, to pray over my nation, to pray over the church, to pray over all of those that are around me, to pray for your neighbors. We grow passive in all that we do, and we sit back, we sit on our hands and say, Lord, come quickly. And we remain inactive, just awaiting the return as if we haven't been given a mandate and a command the whole way through. And because of this growing passive, you may have lost your fight. There's no more laboring in prayer. You've sat back and said, I've just done it for so long. I'm done. I can't. I don't want to fight anymore. I know the spiritual warfare thing, but I'm just going to sit back. I'm going to continue. I'm going to be passive. Because again, God's in control, so I don't need to do anything, right? We talk about so much concern with our nation. I know so many of you are greatly concerned about the country as a whole. You're greatly concerned about the politics. We're greatly concerned about legislation and all of these things. But understand, a vote has never determined uh, if a country is going to honor God or not. Even when we were a Christian nation, there were many that did not honor God. It is not as if um, those are the things which are truly the test. And again, we have not been called as Christians to change the economics and just the social implications of our society. We are to call men to repentance, to preach the gospel, to talk about the love of Christ, and to change hearts. It's not just through our voting record. So many people would rather run to the polls than ever share Christ with their neighbor. As Paul goes through all of these things, we get to the end of verse 18. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Why? Because there is the fellowship and the joy through their sufferings. You are going to suffer. We are going to suffer as a church body in some form or fashion. That is a promise. That is a guarantee. I know that may not perk everybody up and get really excited to want to charge on the white horse, run right through the doors. But this is an ever-present reality for God's people. Are you prepared to endure the suffering with joy and gladness because it is the working and perfecting of your faith? When those things come, will you be thankful that the church is a body and a collective corporate unit, not just you as an individual? Are you going to be thankful that, as we talked about in the Sunday school this morning, that we have the opportunity and such ease of being able to go right to God in prayer, that we can offer up these prayers to him, that we can go somewhere, as Mrs. Pace saying about, this rock of ages who has been a rock, not just in my generation or yours, but in all of the years past, eternity past, all the way through the future. This is the rock. This is where it is that we place everything in. And as Christians, we are to stand out as lights in a crooked and a perverse world. And again, the goal is not for us to walk out of here and say, as we meet those that we know are unsaved, and say, ha, you're, 
crooked, you're perverse, you're this, you're that, and to go seeking condemnation and judgment, but it is to call them to repentance, to be able to show them the love of Christ, to be able to go and then minister to them, because as I mentioned last week, that was some of us. Speaking from experience, that was me. I know that was many of you. And are you in anguish over that? Are you hurt? Are you troubled? Are you grieved by the fact that there is a neighbor that you know or a child that you know or a coworker, or a family member you know that does not know who Christ is? And have you been faithful in obedience to shining as a light? Have you been faithful in sharing who it is that Christ is and all that he's done for you? I look back at many of the conversations I have with the majority of people throughout the week. 98% of it, extremely inconsequential. It's about this, it's about that, it's about the basketball stuff at the high school. It's about so many insignificant things. Let's pray. God, this morning I, I pray that Pray that you would cause our hearts to be stirred for those that are around us, the ones that you have entrusted to us, that we have relationships with, those that we have friendships with or family relationships with. God, I pray for an awakening, a a revival within our hearts, ones that would be stirred up to seek those things which are uncomfortable, that we would seek out conversations not to be condemning or to be judgmental, but conversations that we can simply show all it is that you have done for us, that you have taken rebel sinners and that you have turned our hearts around to be holy, to be set apart, that you have called us out of this world for we are not of this world. And we understand that you have saved your people in eternity's past, that you have given your people over to your son to secure salvation for all eternity. God, I pray that each and every one of us here would see every opportunity as the one that we've been praying for for so long to, to effectively minister to those around us, to use the gifts and the abilities that you've given to us that by your spirit we would be faithful instruments to to share the gospel to live a life that is spiritually consistent that we would be obedient in in spreading seeds of the gospel and being willing to simply speak the name of Christ with those that we meet not knowing who it is that will come to repentance and to faith, but understanding that you are the one doing all of the working along the way, as we've seen so clearly in so many texts. That because it is your work and because it is the work of your spirit secured by your son, that you have, we have a guarantee of missions around the world, that we have a guarantee of effectiveness and evangelism for those that you have called out of this world. God, I pray that you would continue to give courage, give boldness. Give those of us that have such a desire to share you, to minister to those around us that are greatly troubled in finding an avenue 
I pray that you would allow those opportunities for us to even start in such a simple way and just introducing ourselves to someone we may not know or even our best friend that we know does not know you and being bold in our faith, being courageous to speak the only words of life that have ever been given. Though many today want to ignore it and, and remove the reality that your wrath will be poured out against all unrighteousness and ungodliness and the reality that that hell is a very real thing, a very real place, a, something that is greatly to be feared. I pray that we would be in anguish over those we know that are lost and that we have done nothing to share with them. God, we praise you that in your sovereignty and in your providence that for many of us here this morning that you have brought us out of death and moved us from death into life, saved us by the work of your Son. God, I pray that those of us here who have a heart for you would be calling others to repentance, to, to turn from those former sins, to turn from those things which are past, and to look forward to, to eternal life with you, that we would be called out of our sin, that we would be by the work of your Spirit, drawn into life, that we would be saved for all of eternity, being able to have close relationship with you. God, I thank you for all that you've done. We thank you that your promises are secure. We thank you that, that you never change, that we can have great hope, great confidence in all that we do, and we understand that when we do share you, it is always a win, as your name will always be glorified in heaven or on earth, the name that is above every other name, and that one day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, and that is not an idea, that is a certainty. And we look forward to the day of honoring you in heaven for all of eternity, praising you as you so deserve. God, we thank you for all that you are this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.